some really awful sort of suffering comes upon us, maybe it's chronic suffering, maybe it's something that goes on year after year after year, which can also be profound, uh, or it may be a calamity, whatever happens, it comes upon us, and we find ourselves trying to cook up for ourselves the answer to that question. Why? We will virtually always get it wrong. The business instead is to go comb through the scriptures and note all the incidents of suffering in scripture and find out by those how we should posture ourselves to suffering. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Mark Talbot. Mark currently serves as Associate Professor of Philosophy at Wheaton College and has written or contributed to a number of books, including When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture from Crossway. Today, Mark and I discuss what the Bible has to say about suffering and the question that we all come to so quickly, why? He shares some of what God has taught him through his own experience of profound pain, reflects on what we can learn from the story of Job in the Bible, and he offers wise advice for the person currently wrestling to understand why God so often allows us to suffer in ways that push us to our limits and beyond. Let's get started. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Glad to be here. I think it's fair to say that you've experienced a fair amount of suffering and loss in your life uh, along a number of different angles. A number of years ago, you witnessed a really tragic situation up close, and it's something that you've called a calamity. What happened? The um, incident that started me on writing this particular book was the fact that I lost one of my students to suicide um, in the early 2000s. And um, I had been talking to his parents before uh, he uh, uh, died uh, because he was depressed and I knew that they needed to be talking to people. And it was the grief, the excruciating grief that they felt as Christians, especially when it seemed as if um, they knew that God was all powerful and that he was perfectly good and that he knew everything in advance and they couldn't understand how it would be that God hadn't done something to keep him from doing what he did. Mm. And so that was what got the book started was my trying to address what really was a calamity in the sense of uh, something that that uh, was rather like an earthquake in their lives with regard to their faith that had these ripples that were constantly heading out of it. And my trying to find ways to speak to them and others about how they could survive what I call profound suffering. Mm. I wonder, can you explain how did you first come in contact with him and, and how did you know him? He um, took my intro course at Wheaton in philosophy and was a, a really bright um, uh, open student, uh, very interested in learning, had a deep Christian commitment. Um, he ended up going through Wheaton in less than his four years. And after I had him in intro, um, while I had some lunches with him occasionally, I had pretty much lost contact with him. And in what turned out to be the spring of his senior year, I bumped into him. He was teaching a class. He was a TA and was teaching a class for one of my colleagues who had had to um, go somewhere um, uh, for a day. 
And he said he really would like to get together with me and talk. And it was in that setting that he told me about the depth of his depression and about the fact that it had plagued him for years and that he had just lost hope. He had begged God to change things and God hadn't and that he had lost hope that in fact things could get better. And so we started talking pretty regularly after that for his last term at Wheaton, trying to deal with how he could handle that. And it was after that that in the summer, uh, he went to do a program uh, overseas and uh, while getting ready for a PhD in philosophy, and that was when he committed suicide. It was extremely poignant. Um, it was a Sunday morning, and I had heard the phone ring at about 9 a.m., and I had heard our answering machine pick back up, uh, pick up a call. And as we went by the answering machine to go to church, uh, I hit the button and heard him say, Dr. Talbot, this is Graham, uh, are you there? And then there was a pause and then he hung up. He sounded perfectly fine. And so I thought, well, gee, maybe he's back in the United States for some reason, wants to get together for lunch. It turned out afterwards that we found that he had called me and then he had called a close friend that he had at college who had suffered from depression. And then he had also called uh, the head of counseling at Wheaton, uh, three of us, just one right after another. And um, people who saw him on the platform of the train station saw him make these calls and then throw his cell phone away. And about an hour later, he stepped in front of a train. Oh, how sad. Uh, and it's, it's not the only thing that you've been involved with. I, I know that you have often been someone that people have turned to over the years when they're in the midst of some kind of profound suffering or trial. And so I wonder, as you think back over your life, are there things that you've gone through that you think God has used to prepare you to minister to people who are in the midst of profound suffering? When I was 17, I took a drop of about 50 feet off a rope, a Tarzan-like rope swing, when another guy jumped on and he missed the rope and was hanging on to me. And I broke my back. And so I went to college walking with either one or two canes most of the time. And uh, my walking was really, really awkward. And it more or less drew students to me who were hurting um, as, um, as uh, flies to honey. Uh, people just uh, spent um, a great deal of time coming to me and asking me to help them out. I had three wonderful mentors in college, Dave McKenna, who was the new president of Seattle Pacific College. A year later, Frank Klein came as the dean of religion. And then a year after that, Cliff McCrath came as the dean of students. And uh, they worked with me. They gave me hundreds of hours to understand how to talk to these students. And so what's happened ever since then is that um, I found myself uh, regularly in situations where I do a kind of informal counseling. Um, professional counseling, of course, is tremendously important, but there's a kind of informal counseling that takes place over long lengths of time that's um, at least as important. And um, I've had students at Calvin when I was there and at Wheaton who um, were suicidal and a couple who took their lives. And so when this happened with Graham, it, um, it wasn't as if it was my first experience with something like this happening. I didn't have any doubt, Matt, that he was a Christian. 
uh, it seems to me that um, uh, even Christians can commit suicide and yet God can cover uh, that awful sin because it is a sin to take charge of one's life in that way and to end it. Uh, God can cover that with Christ's blood. And I, I, I don't think I ever really doubted that that was true in Graham's case. Yeah, I think this suicide in particular, but there are other other examples of profound suffering that that can, I think, stretch us um, maybe to the breaking point in terms of uh, our not understanding why this is happening. It seems like that's that's one of the first things that we often ask is yeah. is something like why? Uh, what's behind that impulse towards asking that? I think what it comes to is this. Uh, it seems to me that if we try to answer questions like why without understanding what Scripture has to say about suffering, we will always end up going off the rails. And so what you have to do is you have to go to Scripture and see what Scripture says about suffering. Because here's what naturally happens. Here's our natural inclination with regard to suffering. We believe in a perfectly good and all-powerful God some really awful sort of suffering comes upon us. Maybe it's chronic suffering. Maybe it's something that goes on year after year after year, which can also be profound. Uh, or it may be a calamity. Whatever happens, it comes upon us, and we find ourselves trying to cook up for ourselves the answer to that question. Why? We will virtually always get it wrong. The business instead is to go comb through the scriptures and, uh, and note all the incidents of suffering in scripture and find out um, by those how we should um, posture ourselves to suffering. And part of the posture is that we don't always know what the answer is going to be with regard to why. All we can know is that the God that we believe in is one whom we can trust. So it's only if you go to scripture that you're not going to make a mistake in trying to answer the why question by the wrong answer to the who question, which is more or less, well, either God's not perfectly good or he's not all powerful. Hmm. So have you personally in your own life ever struggled with the question why and to such an extent that you did maybe question God's goodness or sovereignty? Yeah, I'm not going to give you the details, but um, I went through something that was really, really tough a uh, number of years ago now and um, uh, found myself thinking that God had set me up for uh, a tremendous amount of suffering. It seemed as if he had been treacherous to me. And I found I would work all day. I, I work lots of hours other than Sunday and would go to bed trying to sleep and couldn't sleep. And I was even trying to repeat to myself the Psalms and it didn't seem to be helping. And so I was getting only three or four hours sleep a night. And I found myself just thinking, you know, it seems to me in this situation that God has not been good to me. But then, as I say in the book, I think our business is to understand the breathing lessons that are in the Psalms, which is that we exhale, breathing out to God our laments, and then we inhale uh, what we know from Scripture and from our own lives about how God is faithful to his people. And, uh, and we always do that 
um, uh, as a I-you relationship. We never end up referring to God as he, and in that sense, gossiping about him in the third person. We always take it directly to God. And, uh, and it was within that framework that um, I tried to work, and it was horribly hard. Well, actually what happened was it was when my student took his life that I realized that what had happened to me some years before was God preparing me to be able to respond to his parents in uh, a way that would not have been hurtful and formulaic, but uh, to respond to them in such a way that they would realize that I understood their pain. One of the things that I claim is that if you've suffered profoundly, um, you know what profound suffering is. And if other people suffer profoundly, it doesn't matter what causes it. You can still understand their profound suffering in general in such a way that you can be helpful to them. And I think that what I went through was meant to prepare me for that. And as that happened, I found myself finally saying, thank you, Lord. I see why I went through that. I see what you were teaching me then that would allow me to be helpful to others now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost uh, cliched at this point to emphasize how easy Western Christians have it when it comes to our lives, whether <laughs> you know that's that not worrying about what we're going to eat or having yep. extremely good health care compared to most of the world or being safe from violence for the most part. Um, and we also live in a culture that puts is a high premium on comfort and leisure and entertainment. And so I wonder how how impactful is that cultural setting that that most of us listening right now live in when it comes to how we think about suffering? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh it makes a tremendous impact on how we think about suffering. If you think about the fact that we have lived in societies now for about 1,500 years or so that are uh, at least wise not explicitly opposed to Christian faith. In the Western world, um, uh, from the time of Augustine on, Christian faith was to some degree uh, accepted, even if probably it didn't go really, really deep with a lot of people. And you realize that therefore there hasn't been much opposition of the sort that the early Christians faced uh, in Rome. And then you think also about modern science, which is, of course, a gift from God. It's part of the creation mandate that we are supposed to work to understand the creation in such a way that we can exercise dominion over it and subdue things like this coronavirus. If you think of all those things, then you realize that our situation, uh, particularly in the last 100 years, has been a real anomaly. In 1900, um, if, if I remember rightly, there were about 165 infant deaths for every 1,000 births, uh, 165 infants who died within the first year. In uh, 1997, I think it was, there were seven. You think of the childhood diseases that have been uh, quenched by means of vaccines and so on and so forth. Uh, and you see that the... Um, um, uh, life expectancy in 1900 was 47 years, now it's over 75. We are living in a period of anomaly, and as a result, when suffering comes upon us, we're startled, and we think this just isn't normal. 
If we read our scriptures regularly and carefully, working particularly through the Old Testament, where you, because it's got a longer period of time to it, you get more of the details of suffering, we would realize that this is an anomaly. And we would realize that it may not last. And we would realize that suffering quite often is in fact something that uh, uh, the Old Testament saints thank God for, and the New Testament saints too. They just say, God, we are thankful that, well, Psalm 119, the psalmist uh, just says uh, to God, you are good and you do good. Um, um, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Uh, I know uh, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And I think that that still is the answer that that um, most of us have when we suffer now, that once we're through the really, really hard part of it, and this is, by the way, true even of non-Christians, that non-Christians will say, my suffering helped me to figure out what was important and what was not. Robert Bella's book, Habits of the Heart, brings that out uh, with regard to some non-Christians and their suffering. I I think that suffering makes the worthless things drop away. That was what happened to me with my accident. I fell about 50 feet and all the worthless things I was chasing after, even though I was a Christian, just fell away. And so suffering in that sense uh, is ultimately a blessing. Mm. But I wonder, as, as you think about the Bible, and I'm going to ask you to not, not choose Jesus's death, which is in, in some sense the most profound suffering, you know, unjust suffering anyone's ever experienced, not choosing him, what would you say is the most intense story of suffering in the Bible, in your in your opinion? Wow. I think uh, this is really hard to answer, Matt, because there's a lot of profound suffering. And as I've suggested, uh, profound suffering is such that when you go through that, you can't imagine worse. Um, Jeremiah certainly suffered more than Job because he suffered his entire lifetime under a great deal of social hostility, physical abuse in chapter 20, and depending on how you interpret the Hebrew word for stocks, perhaps torture in chapter 20. And Jeremiah's story reads as if he is um, a Holocaust survivor. Uh, it, It just breaks off, doesn't even tell you of his death. It loses its chronological coherence, at least after chapter 20, uh, where we get incidents from different times in his life. So Jeremiah would be pretty important, but of course, lamentations with regard to mothers eating their babies and so on and so forth is, um, is again, excruciating, excruciating pain. I think in the New Testament, Paul, and it's because our Lord, in fact, warned him in Acts 9 that um, uh, he would suffer much for the name. And uh, Paul gets goaded into explaining some of the suffering he went through in Second Corinthians in order to answer the so-called super apostles who said, if you're suffering so much, God can't be your God. I think sometimes uh, there's a certain way that we even approach Scripture, though, that makes it, I don't know, easy to not realize that this suffering that we're reading about, say, Jeremiah, is is real and profound. It, it feels so, in some ways, distant from us and removed from us. 
And so it's easy to kind of, or, or we know the ending, and so we kind of know, oh, God's going to, with Job, for example, yeah, he's going to suffer all this, but then God's going to give it all back to him and more. And so it, it probably wasn't so bad. Uh, and we don't have that ending clearly laid out for ourselves in our own lives. So I guess, how have you how have you wrestled through that and kind of gotten under that when it comes to reading Scripture? Another really good question, and I think what it comes to is this. Until we are suffering pretty significantly, uh, we don't even notice most of the suffering in Scripture, um, such as my getting to the place that I realized that Isaac and Rebekah suffered for 40 years uh, through barrenness until uh, they had their twins. Uh, I would have never noticed that if I wasn't looking in Scripture to see these almost silent cases of suffering. And so until we suffer pretty significantly, we could say that suffering isn't an existential issue for us. Um, but once we've suffered that way, then we find Scripture speaking to us with regard to this. I'll give you a really interesting example with this. You remember uh, the Sandy Hook tragedy, where in fact 20 first graders and a bunch of their um, uh, teachers and so on were shot to death by a kid. Uh, in their elementary school. Um, um, on the national news um, uh, stations, the networks, there, was, um, uh, there were pastors who were uh, interviewed, and it was quite clear that they were doubting their own faith because of this tragedy. It struck them as so significant that they couldn't see how God could possibly have allowed that if he was perfectly good and all-powerful. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you look in Matthew chapter 2, and you read about what's called the slaughter of the innocents, where Herod went into Bethlehem and slaughtered all these kids, the interesting thing is that probably the number of children that were slaughtered was roughly the same as we find with the Sandy Hill tragedy, uh, Sandy Hook tragedy. And, and yet the interesting thing is this, when Matthew mentions that, he doesn't take that in any way to challenge God's perfect goodness or his power. In fact, he takes it to be a corroboration of what God had predicted in Jeremiah that in fact was ultimately a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. And so it seems to me that what it comes to is it's only as we suffer and then we go back through Scripture that, and we don't do this on our own, the Holy Spirit helps us to do this. It's only then that the Scriptures start to speak to us about these things in such a way that they can comfort us and they can sustain us and they can help us endure. Mm. So I guess speak, this is kind of going back to something you said earlier, but speak to the, the Christian who's hearing that, that admonition to turn to Scripture, to, to search Scripture in the midst of suffering, uh, that we might see God's purposes in it, see God's power over it. I wonder if to some Christians that's actually a pretty scary encouragement, because they're afraid at, at a vision of God that they maybe don't quite have right now, that they're afraid they might see in Scripture. They might not like what they see, and they might be af afraid of what they see. So I guess I wonder, um, this, 
what would you say to the Christian who's feeling like that and, and isn't sure they want that view yeah. of God from the Bible? These are all just really excellent questions, Matt, um, um, because these are the very sorts of things that come up with people. Robert Dabney, a great theologian of the 1800s, um, lost three sons to diphtheria and lost a sister to some sort of lung disease that she got by ministering to people during the Civil War. Uh, she got to the place that she couldn't eat uh, because uh, it hurt so much that she, she more or less starved to death. And uh, the account of Dabney going through this, first losing a five-year-old son, diphtheria tends to put this uh, kind of film over your throat in such a way that you lose the ability to speak. And his five-year-old ended up mute and just could plead with his folks, as his father said, with his beautiful liquid eyes, couldn't say anything and then died. Uh, a couple of weeks later, his six-year-old died. And he talks about the way that all of that, that with his first son, he could maintain his hope. With his second son dying, he, he found that he had the same reasons to hope, but he couldn't feel it. And then years later, he lost a third son and wrote a beautiful poem with regard to how hard it was for him in those situations to um, uh, grasp the gospel and believe it wholeheartedly if it included things this tough. But then what he does is he mentions 1 Peter 3 and the fact that in 1 Peter that uh, Christians got through horrible kinds of suffering and endured and he says, and if they did, we can too. Every time that a couple of my colleagues read that story when we're going through drafts of my stuff, one of them says to me, you have ruined my whole week. And it's the very sort of thing that you're talking about. He loves his children, his grandchildren dearly. And the very thought that something like this could happen, that God could allow something like this to happen, is to him the scariest of thoughts he could have. And... I think that the answer in that situation is not to try to argue him in to uh, seeing that even this can happen. It's instead um, just to leave the witness there and then to pray that, um, that if he needs to realize a truth like that in this life, that God will graciously and mercifully allow him to learn it. But not all of us need to learn that truth in this life. I sometimes have people come up to me when I'm speaking and they say, boy, I wish I had suffered more because maybe I'd be deeper like you. <laughs> to mm. which the second half of it is just wrong. Um, although I think that, that my suffering has helped me to have certain worthless things drop away. That's not, that's not central to it. But what they don't understand is that this is all up to God, and we are not to be masochists, and we are not to say, God, bring it on, give me all the suffering you can. Um, instead, we're to, to understand that, that he charts all of our lives in such a way that we will learn individually important truths that we can share with others. And the truths of suffering are not going to be the main truths that some people share or even understand. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm struck by how much 
uh, you've talked about how suffering is so often given to us. Certainly, this is your own experience of suffering given to us that we can then minister to others who are suffering as well. How big a role has that ministry been in your own thinking about why God has allowed suffering in your own life? It has been, I think, the factor that has redeemed the suffering I've been through more than anything else. Second Corinthians, first chapter. Paul says that he and Timothy suffered so horribly, he doesn't even tell us what it was, that they despaired of life itself. And yet he says, and yet this happened so that God could comfort us so that in whatever kind of suffering you are in, we can comfort you. And so much of the way that suffering gets redeemed, that it becomes meaningful, I mentioned this on a little piece of mine called Broken Wholeness, much of the way that it becomes redeemed and being meaningful is by our starting to minister to others. And, and uh, God will bring people to us um, who need to hear what he has taught us. And it's in the midst of doing that that I find myself again and again, like Paul saying, um, I can see that what I have been through has the great good of allowing me to speak meaningfully into other people's lives. So maybe as a last question, speak to the person listening right now who is right now in a profound season of suffering, whether that's due to a medical condition or the loss of a loved one or maybe something else entirely that that neither of us knows anything about and has ever experienced. Um, what three practical next steps would you encourage that person to pursue in the face of what maybe feels like debilitating pain? Yeah. I don't think I'm going to give you three steps because I think that quite often we end up commodifying the gospel by quantifying things. Um, I would say that um, probably the most important advice is wait. Um, um, uh, If you are God's child and you are saved by Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells you, God will not abandon you. You may not in this lifetime understand why you've been through something. But Paul makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 4 that these light and momentary afflictions will be vastly outweighed by what happens when we see our Lord face to face. So I think that would be the main lesson. I actually had something happen this morning that was interesting. A friend of mine just lost his mother. And he wrote me and he said, you know, I'm not having a hard time reading scripture but I can't focus with regard to prayer. And uh, he said, any advice? And I told him that I wouldn't worry much about not being able to pray effectively, to be able to pray verbally. And the reason I wouldn't worry is because his relationship with God is personal. In fact, it's tri-personal. It's a personal relationship with God the Father, a personal relationship with God the Son, a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's not merely formal or mechanical. And in fact, it involves both Jesus and the Holy Spirit having an intimate knowledge of human nature, which of course our Lord got during his earthly life, and of our own individual human natures, which the Holy Spirit knows in a way that we can't ever know it. 
And so just as someone who knows us, if we're going through really, really deep suffering, just as someone like that may not have any difficulty understanding that we can't talk right now, that we can't communicate right now, that it's really hard for us to deal with those things, we should understand that the tri-personal God understands that much more deeply and better than we do. And I told him all he needed to do was to put himself in a posture of openness to God. And that uh, through the Holy Spirit, God would hear his groans and the Holy Spirit would intercede for him. And that he didn't need to worry about having words right now. And that indeed, um, it may very well be that, um, uh, that God doesn't expect him to have words right now, if we can put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for uh, sharing from your own experiences and from Scripture itself, uh, just this wisdom as to how we can think and process our suffering. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time. Thanks. That was Mark Talbot on asking why in the midst of suffering. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.